Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Simon Long, International Editor at The Economist. And this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, Goldman Sachs seeks to polish a tarnished reputation. It certainly seems as though he's he's mixing things up a little, much has been made of the fact that he's a DJ. Uh, he's also sort of relaxed the Goldman Sachs dress code, but in more meaningful ways, he's increasing transparency as well. And Tiger Woods' comeback tees up big business in the golfing world. It's very likely to be the best year for golf in terms of viewership and sponsorship revenue since the last time Tiger was great. But first, some of the giants of Wall Street, the big banks like J.P. Morgan, Citigroup and Bank of America, reported earnings this week. Bank of America reported a 6% year-on-year rise in quarterly profit on Tuesday. And Brian Moynihan, its chief executive, said it was a challenging capital markets environment. Recently, Anne McElvoy spoke to Mr Moynihan at an IE University conference on higher education at Brown University. She started by asking him why he felt so bullish about the American economy when others are describing it as a bubble. Well, you have to step back and think about the broadest context there. The reality is the U.S. was growing around 2%. Last year, it moved up around 3%. And this year, we have it predicted to be in a 22 2.3% range. And in fact, due to the uncertainties around the Brexit situation in Europe, the uncertainties around the China trade relationship with the United States, and even getting the new trade deal with Canada and Mexico through Congress, that's caused people to revise down. But underneath that, we're growing as fast as we've basically grown almost every year since the crisis, except for the real recovery years. Unemployment's low. Wages are growing. College-educated unemployment in the United States is 2% now. Those are unheard of numbers. The overall is 3.8%. The new claims for unemployment are lows not seen since the late 60s, when the workforce was half the size it is today. We're not saying it's going to grow as fast as it did in 18 because of the issues. But if you see some things fall into place, this longest recovery in history as we approach through this year should continue. And that's a good thing. It's interesting listening to you laying out that very benign picture. And yet, if you look at the challenges to American capitalism, They've rarely, I suppose, in our recent memory, probably have to go back to the 1960s to find as much pushback on the fundamental idea of American free market-based capitalism. So if it's as good as you say it is, why is there such a resurgence of interest on the left of politics and perhaps many more people at least looking at that kind of redress to capitalism who seemed perfectly happy before. We believe our job as a company is we have to grow profits and be as profitable as anybody in our business and we have to deliver for society what the society has spoken. You asked society what would you like the power to do? They, through the UN, said we'd like the power to make timely progress and sustainable development goals. Our job as a company is to deliver on that side. So how do we do that? What we do as a company in terms of 
in this context, wages and things, we make sure our employees have great benefits, great wages, great opportunity. We hired 27,000 people last year, 4,000 plus from college campuses. And so we continue to invest in our team. What we do for society, we have an environmental program. We just re-upped for $300 billion over the next 10 years to help make the change from the current fuel system, the current energy system, to the new energy system. You talk about our development for low and moderate income housing, $4.7 billion last year. So that's the, the magic of capitalism, but it has to be managed along both paradigms. And that's what we believe in our company. And frankly, most of my business colleagues believe the same thing. And as I work with the International Business Council and others, you know, this is what we're trying to say is let's bring the capitalism to show what it can do. And it has done great things. And we've got to continue to do that. You've clearly made big efforts inside Bank of America to kind of raise the floor on, on earnings. Yeah. And your graph is very impressive. And yet, at the same time, we're seeing a lot of criticism about executive pay, something we write about a lot at The Economist. But if we have a situation and you, you Bank of America declares it, that compensation, your compensation is about 250 times more than the median pay of a company's employees, and that median pay is pretty healthy, do you think there's a question to answer there? Well, there always is, and it's hard to explain this issue. But the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed, had embedded in it what the resolution for policy segment in the United States was about this. And that was to go to your shareholders for approval, the owners of the company. So every year we go to the shareholders and we say, do you approve the compensation? And it's been 93, 94%. Now the question I go to is the other side, which you're referencing, which is my job is to make sure our teammates are motivated and compensated. It's not my job, it's my team's job. And, and we are. The attrition rate's an all-time low. If you worked at our company and earned below $100,000, your average annual compensation increases for the last 10 years have been 6% per year. Hmm. And you know, we continue to grow that. In addition, after the tax reform, we did what we called shares for success. That's a total of $1 billion of compensation to the everybody but the top 5% compensating the company. If you look at the benefit structure in healthcare, when we looked at it, this is pre the uh, Affordable Health Care Act uh, uh, provisions, we looked at it, and for everybody under $50,000 median income in the United States at the time, we cut their cost in half, and it's never gone up. If you were just sitting around having a beer over this, you wouldn't necessarily answer in terms of, yeah. well, this is all right, because my shareholder said it was all right. Do you see any pressure, really, for senior managers, those at the very top, to say, actually, I should take a bit less? If you look at my compensation across the last decades, it was X, it went down, it went up, based on the performance of the company, and I paid all in stock other than my base salary. So my interest in Cheryl was interesting. They own the company, and we never should forget that. Let me give you one other perspective. We had 900,000 different people vote last year in our share with me. That is not a small sample. You know, this is, goes to the question of if you believe in capitalism, you believe in the structure and all that stuff, you know, people are, are paid for success. I went to college and made my way through this company, and my teammates did. My job is to make sure it's balanced and fair. 80-90% of the shares showed up in the quorum. There's nobody left out there that hasn't voiced their opinion. And I think that was the policy resolution. If you believe that it's a free market, you, you should say, let the people in the company decide. How much does finance differ from other industries that have been disrupted by digital upstarts, everything from books to music to media, my business, hotels, taxis? Is it just regulation that keeps the competition out? And you like the idea of competition. I think yeah. you're comfortable with it. Right. And yet in banking, it seems even fintech seems to be slightly kept to the side. Well, there are a couple of different aspects. One is it takes real capital in our business to own a bank charter. 
The second part is you have to have earnings as a matter of safety and soundness. So one of the things our, a bank is graded on is its earnings, is it earning money? Because if you don't earn money, you don't have capital accumulation to help grow your business. So those present challenges for companies that might start up and lose a lot of money to accumulate our customers. We invest more than most fintechs will ever see to invest in our life. We invest $3 billion a year in code. And so in every week, a million plus lines go into the systems. And so we have an artificial intelligence-based voice recognition thing called Erica. It has five or six million users using it. We have 27 million as of the end of March mobile users. We have 37, 36, 37 million digital users, meaning using the other 10 using something other than a mobile phone to access this. You're still building new branches, but when I look at the graph, basically we're seeing branches disappear across the whole right. business. What will a Bank of America branch, for example, look like in five, ten years' time? Will there still be bank tellers? You know, 20 years ago when I first got into the business side of this, you know, I'd have the consultants come in and say, there'll be no bank branches in 20 years. Well, guess what? There are. And the reality is we have 800,000 great clients come into our stores every day and we serve them well. The nature of what goes on is changing dramatically because the automation of the routine tasks, uh, whether depositing a check, getting out cash, the ATMs, whether or not even needing cash to pay through the automated payment means. If you think about that, that's changing what goes on. So what's happened? We've gone from 6,100 branches to 4,300 branches, but the branches we have are bigger. The people there are answer the harder questions. And so this digitization everybody talks about is relentless and new, but the branches are newer and different. So over the last three years, we've redone 1,500 of the branches or so. We've added three or 400 new branches. We'll add another 500 over the next few years. We'll add 5,000 people working there. But the total count may keep moving around because they're bigger. People drive further if they've got that kind of issue. And, you know, it's so when people say, what do you, do you know what's going to happen? The answer is I don't know. But what I do know is it'll be guided by the customer. That's what it's all about. The customer has to determine the behavior. If you get ahead of the customer, you're going to mess this up. And that's the key is to really be understanding the customer behavior change. That's what drives our change. That was Brian Moynihan talking to Anne McElvoy. Well, here to discuss the big banks further is Patrick Lane, our own banking editor. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Simon. You heard Mr. Moynihan there talking about his um, fairly juicy pay package. How is he doing in defending that to his shareholders and the public in general? Well, not too bad, really, Simon. As you said, Bank of America announced this week a 6% year-on-year rise in uh, quarterly net income. It's been a bit of a mixed bag, though, which is true not only of B of A, but also of all the other big American banks. As Mr. Moynihan said, it's been quite a challenging capital markets environment, which may seem surprising when you look at the way the year began in stock markets and bond markets in the United States. The S&P 500 went up by 13.1%. That's the best start to a year since 1998. The bond markets also went up. And you might have thought that would be great for Wall Street traders. Actually, it wasn't because... Uh, revenues in in that business depend on volumes, not on prices. Volumes weren't terribly good. So income from equity trading went down by 22% at B of A year on year. It went down by 13% at JP Morgan, 24% at Goldman Sachs, which is pretty which is pretty wretched, even if you compare it with a, a, a pretty decent first quarter last year. 
other things that weren't quite so good, there was, uh, as we remember now, a long government shutdown, which began just before Christmas and lasted almost till the end of January. And that clogged up the approval of a lot of initial public offerings at the Securities and Exchange Commission. So if you look at uh, equity underwriting revenues, those are down oh, but by you know, 20% at City, which is one of the better ones, and 34% at Goldman's. And that was all, that was all pretty poor. There were other things that were fine on the investment banking side, so advisory was up because we know we've got a merger boom going on. So all that was 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 not great. So in this, what sounds like challenging environment all around, which of these banks is is doing best? Which has found the best path through the minefield? We should say also that quarters come and quarters go. So we don't want to put too much emphasis on one quarter, but. If you are big in retail banking, as Bank of America is, as JP Morgan is, then you're doing pretty well because they did well enough in their retail banking businesses to offset all that trouble on the sort of trading and investment banking side. And also, the effect of scale in this business is maybe beginning to tell. I mean, B of A and JP Morgan, they've both got an awful lot of uh, firepower. They're both putting a lot of money into IT, as are all banks. Is that is that how, what banks are now? Basically, technology companies, so scale matters because they have more money to invest in it? Increasingly so, yes. Although it's it's not just investing money in computing power, they have an awful lot of data on their customers, data which you don't have if you're a fintech, you know, if you're an upstart, because you don't have the long-running customer relationship. As you get further down the scale, it gets harder. That doesn't mean that others aren't trying to do it. So, for example, PNC, which is based in Pittsburgh, is looking at getting people on board as digital customers and then maybe following up with a with a physical presence. Uh, U.S. Bank Corp, which is another big regional, is thinking along the same lines. But you've really got to be pretty big to pull that off. Patrick, thanks very much. Thanks, Simon. Well, have the big American banks future-proofed their businesses? Our finance and economics editor, Helen Joyce, will be investigating the future of banking on Money Talks in a few weeks' time. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Next, how can Goldman Sachs polish its tarnished image? The bluest of blue-chip American investment banks has a new chief executive, David Solomon, who took over last October, a new more relaxed dress code, though probably not jeans and T-shirts, I'm guessing, and a new fight to clean up its own reputation. Its involvement with 1MDB, a fraud-riddled Malaysian government investment fund, has weighed on Goldman's share price as well as its image. And this week, it unveiled first quarter profits, down a fifth from a year earlier. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent and joins me from New York now. Hello, Alice. Hello, Simon. Firstly, let's start with those results. 
down, as I say, I think 21% from a year earlier. Why is Goldman Sachs comparatively doing worse than the others? Is it is it just the 1MDB involvement or are there other factors? It's a couple of things. Definitely 1MDB has weighed on their share price uh, since in particular November last year when the Department of Justice indicted a former Goldman employee. But at the same time, I think Goldman Sachs has been relatively slow to adapt its strategy to the post-global financial crisis environment. Uh, As you mentioned, it was sort of the bluest of of blue-chip investment banks, which meant that it it had a very successful model focusing on trading revenues and advising huge corporate deals. But those activities can be quite balance sheet intensive, in particular, its sort of dominance in fixed income and currency and commodity trading. And since 2010, other banks have changed their models. Take Morgan Stanley, for example. It restructured its FIC business in 2015 and has also expanded more aggressively into wealth management, which earns sort of steadier fee-based returns. Goldman Sachs has been re- relatively slow to adapt to these changes, but it is now pushing into new businesses like consumer and corporate cash management that it says will sort of help revitalise its earnings. Presumably the 1MDB issue is far from resolved. That's still a big cloud hanging over the bank, isn't it? Yes, it definitely is. The big question for them going forward is sort of what punishments will be meted out uh, on Goldman Sachs by various authorities. In terms of the likely fine, the way these fines are calculated is you sort of take a base fine, uh, which could be as low as $600 million, which is the fees that Goldman earned from helping 1MDB to issue bonds, or as high as $2.7 billion, which is what the Department of Justice says was embezzled as a result of those bonds. And then you multiply that up by a factor that could be as high as four um, in the worst case scenario. That multiple depends depends on how culpable Goldman is found by the Department of Justice. Um, but the fact that it's cooperating with the DOJ's investigation uh, will help sort of bring that multiple down. One analyst at Wolf Research thinks the ultimate fine will end up being between $1 and $4 billion. Wow. But Goldman's has I- innovated, hasn't it? It has changed its model to some extent. We've seen the launch of Marcus, this new retail bank, which, is, which they're making a big push of over here in the UK. Yes, the consumer area is definitely sort of one exciting area that Goldman is expanding into. It launched its bank, consumer bank Marcus in 2016. And uh, in March this year, Tim Cook, uh, the chief executive of Apple, announced that they are going to launch a credit card with Goldman Sachs in the summer. Um, So they're definitely expanding into that business. And it is having a meaningful impact on their on their cost base in particular. Uh, They've attracted quite significant deposits through Marcus, uh, which is driving down the cost of funding. Uh, The Goldman sort of used to fund itself using mostly wholesale funding, uh, but deposits are becoming increasingly important, which should help them lower costs. At the same time, it's expanding its sort of digital offerings from its consumers to its corporate platform as well. They've launched a platform called Marquee, which will help institutional clients and corporate clients manage their cash as well. And they claim to be sort of pushing more aggressively into corporate cash management, which again should help them lower the cost of funding. And also, I suppose, secure a more reliable fee-based source of income rather than relying on volatile trading. Precisely. And that is something that investors have increasingly rewarded um, from banks that have pursued sort of more fee-based income streams. It may be too early to answer this, Alice, but what are first impressions of how David Solomon is getting on as chief executive? Has he put anything of a personal stamp on the bankers yet? It certainly seems as though he's he's mixing things up a little. I mean, uh, there are some 
sort of fun examples of this. Much has been made of the fact that he's a DJ. Uh, he's also sort of relaxed the Goldman Sachs dress code. But in more meaningful ways, he's increasing transparency as well. It's never been typical for chief executives at Goldman to be on the earnings call. Uh, but this morning, himself and Stephen Scher, the CFO, were both present and answering questions um, about sort of all of these issues from 1MDB to their new strategy and um, and how they're sort of adapting to this, this new environment. So it seems as though he's sort of hoping to have a more engaging dialogue with investors going forwards. Alice, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. And you can read more about this story in the forthcoming issue of The Economist. You can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. And finally... Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. Tiger Woods' thrilling win at the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta has been billed as one of the greatest comebacks in the history of sport. After a stellar career blighted by lurid scandals in his private life and a series of injuries, Tiger's comeback was a moment of redemption and euphoria. This was his first win of one of golf's major tournaments since 2008, and the first since serious surgery on his back had left him barely able to walk. Having sunk as low as 1,199th in the world rankings just 18 months ago, he's now within three major wins of Jack Nicklaus's record of 18. Sponsors and TV companies talk of the Tiger effect, meaning the financial boon his comeback will bring. Feeling less chipper about this are the bookies. Most betting companies had Woods at around 20 to 1 to win and are paying princely sums to those who were prepared to take the long odds. The Economist data editor, Dan Rosenheck, was even more pessimistic in predictions based on his golf forecasting model, Eagle. And Dan's here now to explain himself. Hello, Dan. Hi, nice to be here. So first, could you explain to us what is Eagle and what chance did it give Tiger of winning? Eagle is a statistical model that predicts the results of men's major golf tournaments. And before this year's Masters, it gave Tiger Woods a 2.2% chance to win. Just 2.2%. So it missed something. What was that? I'm not sure it missed something. Um, I think in general, people underestimate just how much has to go right, how much luck is entailed for any one player to win a golf tournament. There were 87 players in this year's Masters, and so the chances that even the world's best player at the top of his game would actually go on to beat everybody else are fairly low. Furthermore, Eagle did not think that Tiger was the absolute best player in the world as he was at his peak. It did see him as one of the 10 best players in the world. And in fact, uh, the model was fairly bullish on on how strong his comeback has been given the short amount of time that he's been playing competitive golf since he recovered from injury. However, it was uh, a mere fraction of the odds that the model gave to the world's best player, which it believes is Dustin Johnson, which was around 8 or 9%. So if Tiger, after his comeback, was at 2.2%, where would he have been in his glory years, at his peak? So peak Tiger was far and away the greatest player in the history of golf by a margin that's almost hard to contemplate. By Eagle's estimate, uh, when he was at the height of his powers, he was playing about one and a half strokes per round better than the world's second best golfer. That gap was bigger than the gap between the second best golfer and the average player in a major tournament. 
as a result of that, whereas Eagle typically gives the favorite in a tournament a 7 or 8 or 9% chance to win, Peak Tiger was at about 1 in 4 for every major he played. So I think what Eagle missed is that Eagle looked at Tiger's performances over the past year, year and a half in all the tournaments he's played and gave him the appropriate chance of winning that corresponds to that level of performance, which is about 1 in 50. The public, in contrast, knew that this player was not just a collection of recent statistics, but also a collection of recent statistics named Tiger Woods, who long ago was far and away the greatest player the game had ever seen. I suppose that's right, that statistics can never capture what spectators or fans would see as the magic of sport, the sort of emotional element somehow, that this wave of support carrying him through the the back nine. I think a lot of bettors do bet on emotion. That said, I think that there's also a realistic question about whether you can accurately statistically model a player who is completely unique. Statistical models work by looking at historical patterns of other similar players and extrapolating them. Well, there's only been one player who was ever as good as Tiger Woods was at his best. Among those cheering, as we mentioned, were the sponsors, TV companies, because golf is so much more popular with Tiger in it. Uh, Is it possible to measure the Tiger effect? Uh, We'll have to see uh, going forward as to exactly how big the financial impact will be. If you just look at TV viewership, the audience on CBS was already up 5% on last year's figures. Estimates from consulting firms are that uh, his late charge to the victory on Sunday made $23.6 million for his various corporate sponsors alone. If he can sustain this, and it's very likely to be the best year for golf in terms of viewership and sponsorship revenue since the last time Tiger was great. And what about the betting companies? Have they taken a really big hit from this? Yes, they have. There was a ton of money coming in because everybody wanted to bet on Tiger. And then this time, it looks like the public knew something that maybe not only my statistical model got wrong, but the bookies as well. And they're paying up. And at least Eagle didn't lose any money. At least Eagle did not lose any money, fortunately. Dan Rosenheck, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.